You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. This episode is brought to you by Palo Alto Networks, the leader in cybersecurity. As AI-driven attacks increase, organizations can't afford to have network security that's stuck in the past. Discover how Palo Alto Networks can help you predict what's coming and proactively secure against it with a zero-trust, AI-powered network security platform built to secure whatever, whenever, wherever. To learn more, visit paloaltonetworks.com slash network security platform. Welcome to SpyCast from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Mark Stout, historian of the museum. I'm a Ph.D. author and historian who served for 13 years as an analyst in the U.S. intelligence community. Every month, the museum brings you interesting talks with authors, scholars, and practitioners who have something to do with the world of intelligence and espionage. We are fortunate to have with us today Randy Furson, the president of Furson Associates, a company which teaches advanced analytic techniques and critical thinking skills to analysts both in the United States intelligence community and in the private sector. Uh, Randy is co-author with Richard J. Hoyer of a new book, Structured Analytic Techniques for the Intelligence Community. Randy retired from the U.S. intelligence community in the year 2000 after a 28-year career, and his last job there actually was as National Intelligence Officer for Latin America, in which capacity he would have been overseeing the production, among other things, of national intelligence estimates on Latin America. Previously at the CIA, Mr. Furson oversaw the production of intelligence analyses on a broad range of topics, and he also served on the Inspector General staff and was the Chief of the Strategic Planning and Management staff under the CIA's Executive Director. In 2003, he founded Furson Associates with his wife, Catherine Furson, herself a former senior intelligence official. Uh, she's now chief executive officer of the company. Randy Furson, welcome to the International Spy Museum. I'm pleased to be here. Well, it's, it's wonderful to have you. And I must say, as, as a former intelligence analyst, not nearly as long or as auspicious a career as you, but a former analyst myself, I'm delighted to have somebody in here to talk about analysis. Uh, you know, you, you, you can argue that the, the case officers, uh, the operations officers at CIA dominate the corporate culture, but I always like to point out that almost everything they did ultimately was to put information on my desk for me to read and analyze. So I'm delight, delighted to have, a, have somebody here to talk about that today. Um, so let's start easy here. What is intelligence analysis and what's it for? What is this function that the community seems to think is so important? Well, intelligence analysis is probably distinguishable from a lot of other things people do every day on two counts. The most important count is what you do as an intelligence analyst is take a look at all sources of information that come in, many of which are classified or secret. Human sources that are overseas that are collecting it, you have technical means to collect it, and you get overwhelmed in your inbox with a tirade of information, and then you sort through it and you try to basically build a mindset a positive mindset of how you explain whatever you're looking at based upon the information that comes in. The other really distinguishing characteristic is most of the time you're not dealing with what has happened or explaining the past, but you're trying to predict the future. 
And one thing we know is that you literally can't predict the future, but our job is really to frame the drivers and frame the factors that are going to influence how the future is most likely to evolve and basically give decision makers in the Pentagon and policymakers at the White House or the State Department a leg up on trying to understand where things are going and what they will have to do, how they'll have to move resources, or how they'll have to adapt policy to changing circumstances in the world. So how is this then different from what CNN or the New York Times may be doing? They focus largely on reporting, and I would say they're mostly reactive, where they, they're trying to get the story out as to what is just happening today. They do some really great feature articles and in-depth analyses, but most of the time they're trying to make sure that everybody knows what is happening, and the intelligence community analysts greatly appreciate that. In fact, for many, many years now, almost every office has got CNN or another station up in the corner uh, just trying to make sure that they know exactly what's happening and what's being reported. Uh, the difference is the that is the the immediate act activity, and as an attempt to look at it, you do get some analysis, but I think is mostly commentary, with the talking heads coming in saying this is what to think about it. But generally, what you'll see is they will be talking about what happened today or very immediate events, and it's rare that you'll have the talking heads put this in a larger context and say and validate what's being seen. And, and probably provide a sense of what is going to happen in the next month or the next year and how things that are likely to happen are going to change what's on the ground today. You mentioned that a lot of intelligence analysis ultimately is about trying to look towards the future. So is this intelligence analysis, is it an art? Is it a science or is it, frankly, some sort of voodoo? How, how would you characterize this? Well, there are a lot of people in the community and in academia who would love to argue that issue for maybe five hours over a good beer. And we, we have, have neither had, beer nor five hours, <laughs> <yes>. unfortunately. <laughs> so the quick answer is that if you're in the business and you have to produce and provide support to the policymaker and the decision maker, you have to do both. There's a lot of art. In fact, one of the concerns we have is that there's probably too much art to some of the work we do. I, I used to explain to people when I first came on board and started to do analysis, it was a very, and for much of my career, it was a very simple process, is they ask you to sit down, read as much as you have time to read, which is never enough, and then come up with an answer and write it down, basically suck up out of your thumb what you think is going on intuitively, and then write it very crisply in a paragraph and send it out and tell the people what they need to know. The difficulty with that is that you've got lots of cognitive traps, lots of reasons why you may not just get it right, and you don't have any checks and balances, and you don't have any science to how you're doing it. So the science part comes in really when you're trying to overcome some of your cognitive failures, but also do some good uh, forecasting and really make sure that you have the entire context of the situation. So what we see is a process, well, one example, we do a scenario, alternative futures or multiple scenarios generation, which has a lot of method to it, 12, 15 steps. So you have the science of the process of how do you generate drivers and scenarios and list key assumptions. And it looks like it's a really big machine. But the fact is, after you've done all these brainstorming techniques and you've got a good sense of how complex the situation is, the art comes into saying, okay, now we're going to narrow this down to four scenarios and making the choice of what are the most effective scenarios to present to describe how the future could evolve is certainly an art, and it's not a science. 
So the intelligence community, there's been a lot of, a, of evolution going on in how it thinks about analysis and how it wants to train and educate its people to do analysis, and certainly your company and you personally are, are a big part of that. Uh, one of the key drivers on this, I assume, was some of the prominent intelligence failures of uh, this last decade, the surprise on 9-11, the fact that, after all, there weren't weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. Did any of those sorts of cases illustrate some of these cognitive traps or some of these failures that they're talking about? Are there sort of points you might use there to illustrate what you're talking about? Well, they had a very large impact on the community, and I would be very careful to distinguish the two. Uh, my reaction to 9-11, personally, I was walking into my new office, I just retired from the agency, and I heard about what had happened, and the immediate reaction was everyone's reaction, well, another Cessna went off flight, and boom, there was a problem. As soon as you saw that it wasn't a Cessna, you know, I, and I saw the airliner go into the plane, into the, the first tower, my reaction was, I'll be damned. That's what they decided to do because I was really surprised by what they picked. But the fact that there was a major incident in the United States was something that we'd been waiting for for a very long time. And George Tennant, you know, who I was working with closely, I mean, they'd been down and they had been warning people that this thing's coming. So there wasn't a surprise by the fact of what happened. Now the body politic could have been surprised, but Washington DC generally should not have been surprised. And if they were, then that was they were not reading and listening to what was being said. It did make a point, and for the community after the fact of that event, is what we really had to do and what the, the studies argued was we had to get more imagination into our process. You know, we had to be more creative and we had to kind of get out of the linear box and the left brain box and generate some techniques and some processes for doing that. We had been working for 15 years before that uh, with a group we began actually called the Global Visions Group of Mavericks across the community who introduced the idea of doing scenarios analysis, pulling a lot of intellectual property from Peter Schwartz and what he had done at Royal Dutch Shell and had a lot of success in developing scenarios analysis as a way of getting people to imagine many futures and to be more creative about the process. Subsequently, we've also put a lot more energy into a couple of techniques, kind of like, well, one is called a what-if analysis, where you posit that something is dramatically different. There has already been an attack. How did it happen? Uh, or uh, Saudi Arabia has fallen. You know, the monarchy is no longer functioning. How did that occur? And it helps you get out of your, reframe the issue, get out of your mindset and do that. So on the 9-11 side, you know, we, we had a lesson learned from that process. To be honest, we were only halfway there because everybody knows they need to do this but they feel a lot of time pressure and it's still very important to move in that direction but we've made a lot of progress and actually the what if kinds of papers are now much more popular and you see a lot of those and they're very actually they're also fun to read because it allows you and allows the policymaker to think about the future without having to be told this is exactly what a prediction is and it prepares them intellectually for things that could happen down the road. Iraq WMD was a absolute fiasco from the pers perspective of the intelligence community. Nobody in the community will say that will defend our record. Uh, there were two really critical errors we made in terms of analytical tradecraft, and we're still recovering from that. Uh, one, of the, we had been teaching courses in structural analytical techniques, and and it was previously was called alternative analysis. That's another story, but. So we realized the need to do better analysis. We realized that there were some real 
gaps in how we approach things. But we really had to internalize that as a community for how we approach things. If you talk to most of the people who were intimately involved in Iraq WMD and the failure to, or the, you know, what they will tell you is that it came down to basically we had two operating hypotheses about what was going on in Iraq. And that was that Saddam had a heck of a lot of weapons. And the second hypothesis is that he had some weapons. And all the pressure, and no one ever asked us the question, what is going on there? The only question we ever got was, where are the weapons? So everyone was trying to be very responsive and try to figure out. But there was an assumption that there were weapons that we didn't challenge. And more importantly, when we did the analysis, uh, we never had the obvious third hypothesis in the information set, which is there are no weapons. So what happened to a large degree is that when information came in that said there are no weapons, there was no bin to put it in, and there was no way to present that up. We present the individual reports, and this happened a lot. In fact, there was one very inventive collection process, uh, which was to take people who normally went back to Iraq and had relatives who were known to be in the scientific community or in the nuclear community or whatever and would have been working on these things and just ask them as nice American citizens if they when they come back, you know, if Uncle Peter or Ahmed is still there, what is he doing these days? And a lot of people did that. We collected some really good information and the answer was, well, he's not in the business anymore. And we wrote up those reports and they were put into the system and they were blithely ignored. Largely because it wasn't what people wanted to hear and they really didn't pay attention to it. And then more importantly, from the intelligence analysis perspective, they didn't have a bin to put those in as, and they were aggregating. And we only realized it when we did the postmortem as to how much was there that would have justified that. That said, um, we, we also made another major problem, a major mistake that we were still living with, and that is looking at the deception of sources. And Curveball was, is an infamous example of not being able to really validate the source because it was a liaison source, but understanding the he fact. He was being run by the Germans, if right. I recall So correctly. the Germans were running them. They were feeding us the information. It's the kind of information everybody was push pressing the community to provide. So there was a lot of openness to anything that was being said. And efforts were made to do the normal vetting. But when it got push came to shove, you know, we obviously fell down on the stick because we should have been more aggressive in saying, actually having alternatives there to say it may be correct, but if it, if it was du du duplicative, you know, is that consistent with all the information we have? And what would be the motives for it being bad information? So if you put those two together, uh, what's happened is that the communities looked at the need to put more rigor into the analytical process, and they've moved fairly dramatically into adopting some of these structured analytical techniques that we have been developing and writing and putting in our books. Yeah. And that's kind of spread across the community as a, now it's pretty much a requirement to focus on and to integrate some structured analytical techniques into your thought process. You also uh, have told me that you think there are generally generational issues at play here. It's not just pressure from Congress, pressure from the 9-11 Commission, self-generated pressure to do better, but also that there's generational issues going on here that the people coming into the community these days as new analysts don't think and assess and analyze information the way people a generation or two ahead of them did? Well, we have some testable hypotheses I like to put out there. As we've been working with this issue for almost 10 years now uh, in, in the training environment. And what we've seen is that a lot of the younger generation coming in has processes data differently than we do. 
And their way of getting an answer to a question is largely to go aggregate a lot of information that they find. Go ask Google. And they ask Google. So we kind of, I call them affectionately the Google generation. And what they want to do is put all the stuff together. And what really got my attention is I was teaching a graduate seminar at Northwestern with a bunch of students. And I made the comment, you know, you use structured analytical techniques because it organizes your thought process before you do the really serious analysis. And I said, for example, you know, how many of you do an outline before you write a paper? And that was, I thought it would be a very simple metaphor for why you would do a key assumptions check or why you would do some of these other techniques. And then to my surprise and chagrin, less than half of the class raised their hand. And I said, well, how many of you have ever done an outline? And less than half of the class raised their hand. And I said, I think we got a fundamental problem here. I said, well, then how do you write your papers? And they said, well, we put it all together, and it basically writes itself. And we aggregate it, and then we organize it. And actually, when they join the intelligence community, then they do a much better job of making sure that the sourcing is correct and that their levels of confidence are expressed and all these other things. But just a quick story, one of my colleagues was teaching at one of our um, three-letter agencies, and a woman came up and said, here's this paper I've done. And she said, okay, it's about how are they going to deploy naval forces someplace, blah, blah, blah. And she says, you've put together a lot of really good information, you've organized it, and you have, you've cited a lot of sources that say that this is the most likely decision that's going to be made. But what do you really think is going to happen? And the answer was, well, I really was careful about which sources I selected. And I, the one here was very well sourced, and that person who we we cited first, you know, seems to have the best idea of what's going to happen. And she says, "Well, but what do you think is really going to happen?" And the answer was, "Well, there are a lot of sources that we didn't use that we knew were pretty bad." And then she says, "Well, but I'm really just asking, what do you think is going to happen?" She says, "Well, I think you know this, the argument's best done by this person." And this is, and then finally, it was obvious that after five of these questions, that she didn't understand the question. She didn't really have an opinion of her own. Well, she didn't think that that was the job of the analyst to have an opinion. The job of the analyst is to take secret and unsecret information, aggregate it, and display it with great rigor. And that's when I decided we maybe have a problem. So one testable hypothesis is, are we moving into a different way of generating analysis, the aggregation method? The other testable hypothesis, and I see this a lot, particularly in some of the military analysis, because it's a very large, broad community, is there's this belief or absolute faith that the answer is out there. You just have to go find it. So all, so the, if you don't have the answer to the question, then just go do a deeper search. And eventually you're going to find the answer, and that's what your job is, is to go find the answer, as opposed to stop and process the information and figure out what is really going on. So the b belief, and I think actually in their lives, that's generally, generally the case. You know, you go, you want to find out some odd fact, you get on Google, boom, it's there somewhere and you can find it. But most of what we do is also estimative. So there really isn't an answer. And that has to be something that you generate with a line of analysis and with documentation and with a, a structure to how you're doing your process. So given all of these difficulties, and given, as you said, also that that much of what intelligence analysis is about is looking into the future, maybe with a point prediction, maybe with scenarios, but looking into the future. Um, realistically speaking, how good can intelligence analysis ever be? I mean, we can't be perfect. Can our improvements actually, as a practical matter, make a difference here? We can make a big difference, uh, but it takes a lot of energy. 
and it actually brings me to a segue to the previous question as well, is that we can use structured, and as the guy who wrote the book on structured techniques, my answer is supposed to be, you should just use a lot more structured techniques and you're going to reduce your error rate substantially. It's probably true. In fact, I tell most of the classes that the empirical research that I've seen of what are the error rates of professionals, of you sitting here, you know, working and trying to make the spy museum succeed, or doctors reading x-rays for lung cancer or whatever. Most of the literature and the really good studies where they've looked at this, lawyers, whatever, say the error rate's around 20 to 30% for what you're doing. And they've run this many times. So that means that 20 to 30%, you should know that even though you're a quite astute professional, you're going to get it wrong. You know, so the structure techniques will actually, and actually the point there is, which is not surprising, and it's actually just pretty easy because things are usually the same way they were before, and you're in a, in a rut, you're doing what you want to do. The problem is that that last 20 or 30% is the big one. You know, as, you know, people say, well, I analyzed Europe perfectly, you know, for a, for a century, and I only got it wrong twice, and it was the two wars. But other than that, I was, I was doing really great. Uh, and so my error rate, you know, was, was infinitesimal but it really mattered. So what you want to do is to, A, make sure that they're not getting what wrong what really matters, and you want to reduce that error rate. What we learned is we spent a lot more time getting people to challenge their assumptions and use these techniques, use analysis of competing hypotheses and other techniques, was that there's a more fundamental issue that at, at stake. And if you're going to do really good analysis, you have to have fundamentally solid critical thinking skills. And why are you writing this piece? And what is the purpose? Uh, you go through a whole bunch of questions that are essential to have you looked at all the evidence. Actually, a crit really good critical thinking question is, given the fact that there might have been a lot of information that was not available, the fact that there's this huge gap in what you normally would be looking at, how did it affect your analysis? And generally, we're so busy doing analysis that we ignore what we don't see. How's our educational system doing at inculcating critical thinking skills into students in the, the high schools and the universities. Well, this is where it gets, that's the raw material that yes, you and, and the intelligence committee draw on that you hire from. And in fact, one of the things that we're spending a lot of time in my company doing is focusing on academia and how you prepare analysts for moving into government jobs and military jobs where they would be doing analysis. Because what we see is that there's a very serious problem in academia in trying to deal with the critical thinking issue. The government has kind of figured this out, and in most of the agencies, intel agencies, you'll have a course on critical thinking. I don't think they're the greatest courses, which is why we're writing the second book, uh, which we're hopefully in February with my wife, uh, on critical thinking for strategic analysis, where we took the 20 most important questions you need to ask if you're involved in an analytical process and gave people simple answers a page or two long, so they have a little handbook, a practitioner's guide to how to think critically. But the point is, in academia, it's very hard. In fact, I was at uh, University of Pittsburgh last week teaching a class using some of the structured techniques on. We had two case studies. One was the Atlanta Olympic bombing. The other case study was Mumbai. And showing them how you could use these techniques to do better analysis and anticipate or analyze what happened. Uh, and so I asked them, well, if you want to take a critical thinking course, where do you go? And generally in academia, the answer is Department of Philosophy because critical thinking is really seen as logic, and it's a lot of theory and, and a lot of logic. And sometimes you actually will get it in the English department because it's seen as how do you do effective writing, because actually 
effect, you know, critical thinking is what generates effective writing. If you know what you're saying, it writes it really nicely. But the social sciences and even the hard sciences don't have critical thinking courses because in academia, it doesn't fit in any department. So that's really a trans issue. I mean, critical thinking is important for everything, business school, anywhere you go. And we see a huge problem there in terms of how you focus on that. One of the answers is that, well, maybe the intelligence studies programs or the homeland security programs or the criminal justice programs can take this on. And actually, they're starting to do that. But that's a very, very small segment of the college population. And this is what we need all college students focusing on is, you know, why did you write this? What's the purpose? Uh, how would, in fact, one of the best critical thinking tests we have is if you've written an article, if you put together a, a, a discussion or an analysis, well, can you depict it in a picture graphically? And what's amazing is that every time we ask them to do that, there's usually there's a very strong resistance. And they say, well, can I just give you an outline? Because they're lineal thinkers and et cetera, et cetera. So they want to line it up. And so sometimes they'll compromise and they'll give you a flow diagram. You know, box to box to box, but it's still very linear. But as they get into these things, they realize that there are a couple of gaps in their line of argumentation, and they start manipulating their thought process on paper. They start changing their analysis and and actually refining their analysis. So we see this time and again that that critical thinking process of using your right brain and your left brain to get your hands around the entire process. And actually, this the art and the science bring them together and use some of these techniques, you find lots, usually you'll find major gaps and you'll find connections that weren't there. You start drawing lines to different places and it's very powerful. So my hope is that, and my concern for the academic community is, you know, who's going to become the, the department of critical thinking? Uh, because you can, you know how academia is very stovepiped and this is something that easily goes across all the stovepipes, which means that it doesn't have a chance. Of it's got to find a home, and hopefully everyone will want to share the pie, and they'll have different versions of the same course. One of the things we're frequently asked here at the International Spy Museum is by young people who want to know what should I study to get a to get a, to make a career in the intelligence community. So I think you've you've added something to our standard list there: uh, philosophy or English classes, or anywhere where you can get good critical thinking skills. And I, I appreciate it, uh, Randy, you sharing this with us. I think it's important for our audience to understand that there's a lot of really difficult and important things that go on out in the field in the intelligence community, but there's a lot of equally important and equally difficult things that go on inside offices and cubicles uh, here inside the Beltway where people really have to wrestle with some really difficult uh, ideas and organizing ideas in ways that make sense to uh, keep our leadership informed. So, Randy Furson, thank you again for coming to the International Spy Museum. It was a pleasure. Thank you. We look forward to continuing this dialogue with you, and we'd like to know if you have any comments or questions on today's SpyCast. You can get in touch with us through email at spycast at spymuseum.org. Thank you, and we'll see you next month.